Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Lott, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. This is part two of my interview with Stephanie Gray Connors. In part one, Stephanie offered an overview of her many years working in the pro-life movement. We then began our discussion of her new book, Start With What? 10 Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. In this part of the interview, Stephanie and I discuss in detail the 10 principles at the heart of her new book, and then look to the future of the pro-life movement both in the United States and in Canada. So Stephanie, I'd like to begin part two of our interview talking about your book. And again, the title is Start With What? 10 Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. So what I'm thinking is let's let's go through the 10 principles and talk about them. We could talk briefly. We could talk maybe not so briefly. It's, it's completely up to you. So tell us why these principles are important. So the first one is start by asking what? Sure. Well, that's really the heart of the book. And I'm kind of running on a play there with the famous business book by Simon Sinek, whose TED Talk is one of the most popular TED Talks of all time. And his book and talk is Start With Why. And so he talks about in the business world, when whenever you're doing something you want to succeed, you need to know your why. What's your reason for being? And there's merit to that. And I wouldn't object to it. But what I realized is when it comes to suffering, the person who suffers nearly naturally always asks the question, why? Why me? Why did this happen? Why, why, why? And the reality is in that context, when you ask why, you often are left quite dissatisfied because why are some children in other parts of the world victims of human trafficking right now and I'm not? I can't really explain that other than to say evil exists in the world. Life isn't fair. Some things happen to some people and not to others, but it it doesn't really in any way satisfy the way the question what does. So if instead, when we suffer, instead of asking, why am I suffering? We were to ask, what can I do in response to this suffering? Mm -hmm. What amazing, wonderful, incredible thing can I bring out of this terrible, horrible, awful thing? That actually gives us empowerment. Because it's about forward looking. Why is about the past? Why did this happen? And we cannot control the past. We cannot undo the past. Whereas asking what can I do in response is a future oriented question. And it's where good can come even from terrible evil. For example, someone who, you know, was a victim of human trafficking and gets freed might make their what that they help free other people from human trafficking and they help very intentionally in a, in a pastoral way counseling people who have lived through that and their ability to connect and counsel would be very different from someone who's not had that lived experience. So there's a great good that they bring out of a terrible evil. And so that's one example in order to demonstrate that whatever suffering or difficulty we face, we want to empower people by challenging them to bring a good out of their difficult, challenging, even evil experience that they're enduring. Yeah. There's a great line. I love this sentence and it's on page 23 of the copy that I had. I assume it's the same in, the, in the, the final version of the book as well. But you say this, quote, when someone no longer wishes to live and desires assisted suicide, those around them should assist not with suicide, but with helping the, the person discover their what, un, unquote. And that line 
I remember just hit me. And again, as you're speaking here, I was thinking about it more, you know, and, and, and oftentimes we're, you know, talking about people who are suffering. It's what do, you know, what is the person that's suffering? What, you know, what can they do? How do they find meaning? But really this sentence is challenging the rest of us that when we see someone who is suffering, we really have a duty, obligation maybe, to to help them along that path. So it's it's not just the person who's suffering, but it's us who are accompanying that person in their suffering. Absolutely. Because when we're suffering, it can be difficult to see things clearly. So there's certain perspective we're going to have very connected to the suffering that can be turned into a good and be very positive. But it can be so dark at times that we need other people to give us perspective, to give us insight, to give us suggestions of what is possible that we didn't think possible and to to hold our hand through that process. So yes, very much it's a challenge not only for the person suffering to take ownership of how they respond to their situation, but a challenge to all of us around that person to rally around them. All right. Principle number two, if humans are equal, we all ought to get suicide prevention. Yeah. So that, that the, the point of that principle really comes out of something, actually a book that friends of mine wrote, Jonathan Van Meren and Blaise Elaine. And in their book on assisted suicide, they really kind of distill the whole assisted suicide debate down to one question. And that is this. Who gets suicide assistance and who gets suicide prevention? You know, and then you they elaborate on that point to get someone thinking, you know, if you're walking down a bridge and you see someone's about to jump, isn't the natural instinct to do suicide prevention? You try to talk them, you know, off the ledge and back over the railing and, and, and come with you to get help or you call police and, and they're the ones that are going to talk them down. But the point is you see someone about to commit suicide and you instinctively think, I need to prevent this. And yet there's a strange thing happening where the same person walking down the bridge could be a physician in a hospital who has a patient who's elderly and been given a diagnosis where she's told your, your cancer is so bad, you have six months left to live. And that patient says, well, I don't want to live if it's only for six more months. I just want to end my life now. Will you give me an injection or will you provide pills that I can swallow? And tragically, all too often, the same person that would rescue an individual about to jump off a bridge is the same person who would give that injection or the prescription. And what is strange is they're giving suicide prevention to one, suicide assistance to another. And if you ask them why, without thinking too deeply, they might say, well, it's about choice. You see the old woman, I have to respect her autonomy and she really wants assisted suicide. She wants to enter life. So I have to respect that. But if that's what you hear from them, then you can walk them back to the other scenario and say, hold on. If you saw someone about to jump off a bridge, would you stop them? And if they say yes, you can say, well, what about their choice? What about their autonomy? The whole reason they're there is because they want to choose to jump. And if you try to stop them, then you believe that your perspective is more important than theirs, that you should override their choice. And so what that shows is it's not really about choice, but rather without realizing that the individual is motivated based on judgment. When they walk down the bridge, they're making a judgment that the individual who's going to jump is a life worth saving. Mm -hmm. But then what that correspondingly means is if they have a different course of action in the hospital, 
they're making a judgment that that other life isn't a life worth saving. And so who are we to make that judgment about one versus the other if we truly believe everyone's equal and ought to be treated equally? The most logical position is not an in-between zone where some people get prevention and some people get assistance. The most logical position is either everyone gets suicide assistance or everyone gets suicide prevention. Now, most people would be horrified at the thought of everyone getting suicide assistance. And that's the point of making that point. It's to direct people then to the most respectful and equal position, which is everyone should get suicide prevention. And so then that that point chapter really fleshes that out. Yeah, it does a good job. And also, it's again, as you were speaking, I'm thinking of the message that our society, well, U.S. society where assisted suicide has been legal in Canadian society, what's the message to people? So, you know, someone, as you say, the person who's on the bridge, we're going to give them suicide prevention. But the message is if you are diagnosed with a terminal illness or if you are exhibiting signs of dementia, the message is, well, we're going to help you end your life or we're going to end your life. And so so what's the message that people receive um, from our you know, from what our culture is, has gone down or, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, yeah, it's these mixed messages and, and uh, crazy stuff. All right. Principle number three, suffering unleashes love. So that is one of my favorite quotes, actually, which I cite from the late, great St. John Paul II. And he wrote a little booklet, probably one of his, I don't know, technically if it was an encyclical letter or what, but it was called On the Christian Meaning of Human Suffering. Mm-hmm. And in that, he says, suffering unleashes love. And he actually talks about how we owe suffering, um, the love that comes out of it, and how when we see someone who's weak and vulnerable, isn't that typically when we step outside of ourselves and we become very oriented to them rather than us. And we think, how do I will their good? How do I help them? And so one of the ways to look at the imperfect world we're living in where suffering is, as Dr. Frankel said, part of the human experience is to say, okay, how can this unleash love? Which is a sense like the, what, what good can I bring from this? Well, love is an example And I think actually of a story, a documentary I watched, very sad case of a woman in Canada who wanted assisted suicide. She had a degenerative illness. But what came out in the documentary was that she was recently divorced. Her husband was not at all in her life. And she had one child, a daughter who was 18 and graduating high school and was going to go to college, but because of her mother's illness was postponing her education in order to stay home and care for her mom. And the mom wanted assisted suicide. And I thought, well, why? Because she feels like a burden. And I thought to myself, her daughter is going to learn more in the school of love, caring for her mother in need, than she ever would at a post-secondary institution. And so even this, this terrible experience of suffering that the woman was enduring was nonetheless an opportunity for great love to be unleashed. And and um, yeah, so there's just lots of beautiful examples of, of that and of people living that, which then inspires us to follow in their example and say, hey, okay, I can, I can help you too. I can do what this other person did. Yeah. Principle four, we can alleviate suffering without eliminating sufferers. 
Yeah. So what that's kind of a mantra you could say I've, I've been saying for many years, even when I was educating people on abortion, in order to get across the point that we want to distinguish an experience from an individual, that when someone is suffering, it's not about getting rid of them, but it is about getting rid of their experience that's negative. Um, we can't eliminate all suffering, as, as I mentioned, quoting Frankel, but we should try. I mean, it's not like as Catholics, we're like, yes, suffering's amazing, you know, and let's make it happen. No, we ought to try to alleviate someone's suffering. But because we're in this imperfect world, we know we can't entirely eliminate it. But the point should be, we focus on correcting the experience of suffering and eliminating or alleviating that, but not eliminating the very person. And an example I give is of a condition called epidermolysis bullosa. It's referred to as EB for short, which is just, it's a brutal condition. When I learned about EB, I thought, wow, if ever there's a kind of a case study in excruciating pain that someone has to live with all the time, it would be that. So children with EB are born this way, and it's basically where their skin does not form properly, and they get blisters all over their skin. They continually open. They're these, these kind of running sores, excruciatingly painful, and their bodies have to be continually bandaged, and then they bath every other day with bandages taken off, put back on. And the children with EB can also develop these wounds internally. So swallowing food is painful because of the friction of the food touching the internal wounds. So they often are tube fed. So that's an example where you can have profound suffering, but we don't have to eliminate the person with EB and yet it's still possible to alleviate their suffering. And I cite an example of a young boy actually from Canada by the name of Jonathan Petra, who lived for 18 years with this condition and there's a beautiful documentary of him online where a reporter asks him, you know, like, how do you get up every day? What motivates you? And this young boy at the time, he was 14 when the interview happened. And he looks at the reporter and he says, well, it's, it's the people around me. They believe in me. They help me. And then as the documentary progresses, you see that he became an ambassador for EB awareness and he raised a whole bunch of money to try to come up with a cure. But what was striking was that it wasn't his own experience of EB that motivated him to really be outspoken about the condition. It was when he went to a conference for people who have EB and it's such a rare condition. He'd never known anyone else who had his condition, but the conference changed that. And he met other kids who live like him. And when he saw their suffering that he knew so intimately and he could empathize with so profoundly, that is when he decided, I want to educate people about EB. I want to do something about this. And so I often use that as an example to say, his suffering was not eliminated, but it was alleviated through support network, through community, through family, and through meaning and purpose that he had a will to live in order to find a cure and help other people, not just himself. Yeah, when I when I read alleviate suffering without eliminating the sufferers, I'm thinking one of the topics that we at the NCBC are dealing with right now is the whole issue of palliative care and hospice. And and what true palliative care and hospice should be is exactly that. 
you know, it, it efforts to alleviate the patient's suffering without eliminating the sufferers. But unfortunately, and we hear this in, in consults and we hear it from, from other places as well, that there's some element, particularly within the world of hospice or even within palliative care in states that have legalized assisted suicide. But these practices are becoming, uh, or, or let's put it this way, there's, I, I'm just thinking of a, a conversation I had with a physician in a particular state on the West Coast of the United States where a large healthcare uh, system put, uh, when that state legalized assisted suicide, they put it into palliative care. They said, you guys are the ones who are going to come up with the protocols for us to implement this. And it's just, you know, th this whole idea of, you know, what is the purpose of, of, of true end-of-life care, true palliative care, true hospice versus what we're seeing um, all too often in the secular world? So, yeah, lots yeah. of lots of great um, <laughs> lots of great context for here. For sure, it's very troubling, and that's also happening in Canada too, where there's this just perverse blend of assisted suicide with palliative care, and palliative care should be what we can comfortably say is the alternative to assisted suicide. It is alleviating the suffering, but when they try to blend the two together, it's it's profoundly alarming because then there is no safe place other than your own home if someone in your family is capable of caring for you. Right. All right. Principle number five, and this comes right out of Catholic social teaching, human dignity is unconditional. Yeah. So I wrote that when I just kept reading in the news and different pieces by those who support assisted suicide that they wanted a death with dignity. And I started thinking about how if they're implying that they need assisted suicide to maintain their dignity when dying, that implies that without assisted suicide, there's going to come a point where they lose their dignity. And so the point I wanted to get across is actually you can't lose your dignity. Your dignity can be marred, it can be soiled, it can be covered up, but it's still there. And I, I came across a really neat story, completely disconnected from assisted suicide, but the principle is what's connected. And it was about a apartment in Europe where the owner of the apartment had continued to pay her rent, even though the apartment wasn't entered for decades and she had owned it before the war. And when she eventually died and her estate came into the possession of, of someone else, they entered this unentered apartment. And it was like stepping into the past and into a museum. She'd been quite wealthy. And so there was all this different artwork and antiques. But because it had not been lived in for decades, I mean, it was covered in cobwebs and dust and dirt. And there was this painting that when, you know, the powers that be were going through the apartment, they came across this painting. They're like, I think this is like an original piece of some famous artist. And sure enough, they had it checked and it was, and it ended up being auctioned. I think it was for over a million euros. And what strikes me about that story is the painting never lost its value, even though it had been for a season unknown, hidden, and covered in dust and cobwebs. Once it was discovered, then the value was embraced by cleaning it off and restoring it to its proper beautiful form so that it then could, could be auctioned off. And so I use it then as an analogy to say, you know, when you're sick 
when you're disfigured, when, you know, maybe there's a tumor that's completely taking over your face, you might feel, you know, or maybe you're soiling yourself because you can't toilet yourself anymore. You might feel that you've lost your dignity. You haven't lost your dignity. You are made in the image of God who is all good. And he looked at you and said, you were very good, not just good. So you have your dignity, but the brokenness of our world, the reality of disease, that makes us feel like we've lost our dignity. But to prove we haven't lost our dignity, we care for the sick person. We give them their meds. We give them their treatment. We change them when they can't change themselves. And it's like we dust the painting. We acknowledge through our tenderness and compassion that the dignity is there, even if the person has external manifestations that make them feel less than dignified. Yeah. And here we have in the U.S., you know, Compassion and Choices, the pro-assisted you, uh, a pro-assisted suicide and euthanasia organization. That's their mantra is death with dignity. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, another whole podcast on that I'm sure we could do. Next principle, number six, human flourishing occurs in a context of connection. So this is huge and and, and certainly relevant at this time of uh, lockdowns in our world that I think- I was thinking exactly that. Uh, yeah, this coronavirus yeah. thing, this is perfect for that. Uh-huh. I, I mean, it's just, to me, the lockdowns are so profoundly- dehumanizing to the nature of what it means to be human, that we are communal beings. I remember when, when all this began to happen, I texted a priest friend of mine and I said, hell is isolation and heaven is a communion of persons. And as it relates to assisted suicide, you will see that in some cases people want to die and if you dig deeper, you start to realize they don't have a good support network. They don't have family or they don't have friends. They don't have church. Um, they don't have some community around them rallying around them. And that's therefore contributing to their despair. And so our response should be not assisted suicide, but rather building community around someone. I cite an example in my book, another inspiring person. I When I read his book, I thought, oh my gosh, I have to include this in my book. But a young guy from the UK named Henry Fraser. He was about 18, went on vacation and dove into the ocean with friends, but didn't realize how shallow the water was and hit his head into the seabed and, and became paralyzed. And I think it's been about 10 years now. And he is this amazing mouth artist, um, a beautiful painter, and has written two books, very inspiring. And one of the things he writes about is his family. He had, I think it was three brothers, amazing parents, and they just rallied around him. And so when he was in the initial, you know, days of, of this paralysis and being in the hospital and them not even sure that he would survive, it was the support and love of his family that really gave him a will to live. And then I contrast him with, there's a powerful foreign film called A Man Called Ove, which is actually based off a novel. I've only watched the film, not read the novel, but it's a an, it's a Nordic film and um, is subtitled in English. But it's basically a story without giving too much of the details away about an old man who's miserable. And you actually see at the very beginning, like he's trying to commit suicide, but no one knows he's trying to commit suicide. So every now and then, exactly when he's like at the moment where he's going to end his life, a neighbor knocks on the door or a doorbell rings. And it's like, they're interrupting him, but they don't know they're interrupting him. And he's gruff and mean and rough and everyone around him is nice to him. And he's so rude. And so as you start to watch the film, you're like, 
what a grumpy, terrible old man. Like, why are you so mean? And then the film unfolds and there's flashbacks, which I won't reveal, but what they do indicate is what his past is like and where he's coming from. And so that then changes the viewer's disposition about this old man. Instead of thinking about him negatively, you begin to empathize with him and you see that his suffering has colored his outlook on life. And the the film is so powerful because the main message I took from it is you see a man who's profoundly isolated and as a result of that has no will to live. But as people around him need him, as much as he reacts as though they are an inconvenience to him, their need changes his whole outlook on life. And he realizes that by being needed to help others, he actually needs others who he had quite largely shut out of his life. And you see the solution to his despair is not ending his life, but introducing connection and communion. And so it is just vital, especially as a church, that we lead people back to what does it mean to image God? We read about that. We say that all the time. It's in the the very start of the scriptures, the book of Genesis, that we're made in God's image. But God is a communion of persons. He's a trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, this, this, this network that is continually giving and receiving love. And so if we want to create a world in which assisted suicide is rejected, then that world absolutely by necessity must involve connection, communion, and relationship. All right, I have to tell you, Stephanie, you're starting to get it through my thick head. I'm, I'm, I'm understanding the storytelling <laughs> part of the book now. See, it's, it's, it's it takes a while, but it, it you know, it, it's, it's making sense now. Oh, well, good. And you got to watch that movie if you've not seen a man called Jose. And uh, hopefully, you'll be okay. And not everyone likes having to read subtitles, you know, films, <laughs> but it is so profound. All right, so we'll everybody watch that movie as well too. <laughs> All right, because Stephanie said so. And if Stephanie right, said it, right. yeah, we, have, we have to do it. So, all right, principle number seven, we ought to celebrate being. Yeah, so that principle comes out of an advertisement I saw in Canada more than a decade ago. And it was by the Canadian Down Syndrome Society. And it was just, it was a large billboard as you were driving down the road. And it showed the face of a sweet little girl that you could tell visually had um, Down Syndrome. And the only caption was, celebrate being. And I remember I couldn't get it out of my head. And I thought, oh my goodness, I love that message because it really emphasizes that first and foremost, we are human beings. Yes, we can do amazing things and we're designed to do amazing things. So we want to live our fullness to what our capacities are, but we cannot do if we aren't first beings. And it's the being that we ought to celebrate because there will be environments and life circumstances where we can no longer do what we once were able to do. But if we exist, we ought to celebrate that. And there's a a beautiful program. I don't know how it's working now with COVID, but pre-COVID, there's a beautiful program in Washington state at a care home called The Mount where elderly people live and there is a preschool slash daycare that is run out of the building. And so I watched a documentary, which is just so beautiful because it showed how the days of these elderly people were much richer and full 
because of the presence of children. And it wasn't just that the kids used the building. They had intentional interaction time where music time involved the elders and the children, that they would do activities like make sandwiches for the homeless together. And really, both groups, if you think about it, whether you're really a young child or you're an elderly person, you can't do what you know a high-powered executive can do at those two ages of life. But you can celebrate being. And when you see these two groups interacting in relationship, being in love, being in companionship, you see how full uh, both groups are. And there's a, there's a great quote by the director of the care home. And she said, we all have common needs to be recognized, to be loved, and to share life together. And I think that really captures what it means to celebrate being that we may want to do all kinds of things, but if we get sick or if we're elderly or for young children, we may not be able to do those things. But because those are wants, as painful as it is to not be able to do what we want, it's not going to be the end of us. But we do have legitimate needs that if they're not met, will be the end of us. And so those needs, very different from wants, are to be loved, to be recognized, and to do life with someone, with with others. And so that's what Celebrate Being is all about. How do I recognize this other person? How do I love them? And how do I interact and connect with them? All right. Principle eight. And I have to tell you, this is the one that's probably the most challenging for me. Some of the best things in life come when we release control. Yeah, so that was also personally challenging to me because as I confess in the book, I am a control freak. (laughs) Welcome to the club. (laughs) And over the years, varying points have been more of a control freak than others. And in fact, it's been in recent years, various life circumstances where things that were so integral to my life, literally, it was like God just kept taking and taking and taking that that I realized, oh, God is teaching me a whole new lesson in surrender and letting go of control. And what I realized as I, as I researched the issue of assisted suicide and euthanasia is it really comes down to control, mm-hmm. wanting to feel that you are in charge and able to direct your circumstances. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with a degree of control. Um, It's important for us, especially when when you become independent, you become an adult, right? Your parents, for example, once you're an adult, should not be controlling you. There's there's important freedoms that come with full maturation of being a human, but we don't want inordinate control. There still should be a balance, like a dance, where we try to direct and plan, but there's a receptivity and an openness to the unexpected that can be better than what we thought but we won't know unless we let things unfold. And so as much as some people want to control their death down to the day, the hour, the minute, and the second, and they want every single person around them at their bedside thinking that if they throw the party, you know, the death with dignity party, <laughs> that that's ideal. Um, you don't give yourself the chance to see what would happen if life just naturally played itself out. And so I contrast two people in in this chapter, Brittany Maynard, who very sadly took her life through assisted suicide. She was a young married woman who got a brain tumor. 
um, and, and opted for assisted suicide. And I contrast her with the young boy I mentioned earlier, Maddie Stepanek, who both of them had brutal experiences of pain and suffering, but Brittany took total control and Maddie released control. And what's amazing is he was on his deathbed when he was 11 years old and doctors were sure he was going to die. And it's that type of situation where someone might think, okay, look, if I have, you know, the clinicians around me are like, yeah, you're, you're basically going to die. Some people would say, then why keep suffering? Just give me the injection now. But instead of Maddie's attitude being that or his mother's, cause he was a minor, instead of that being their attitude, um, Maddie, first of all, prayed for a miracle. Actually he had, and this is really cool. I don't mention this in the book, but he, um, as I mentioned earlier, he was Catholic. He had a relic of Andre Bessette, who's now Saint Andre Bessette. He's he was a Canadian saint um, from Quebec, but he wasn't a saint at the time. And Maddie was bleeding out of different parts of his body, and he held his chest where he was having a lot of bleeding. He held the relic of then just Andre Bessette, and he might have been blessed at that point. And Maddie said, "Blessed Andre, you need a miracle to be a saint." And I need a miracle to fulfill my mission. And no joke, the bleeding stopped. And the doctors thought, okay, well, this is just a temporary pause, but then it's going to scab and all these bad things are going to happen. But it stopped. And, and he then lived for three more years. And those are the three years, to, to quote Raymond Arroyo, analogizing him to Jesus, that were the three years of his public ministry. That's when he became known by Oprah. That's when he became known by former U.S. President Jimmy Carter and his insights on life, his love of God, his poetry, which became New York Times bestsellers, all that happened after he was on death's door, where most people would be like, what's the point of suffering? Just end it. But because he wasn't in control and he let life unfold, the most incredible three years of his life uh, are then what happened. Yeah. Hey, I was wondering, Stephanie, have you ever heard of not the singer, but Lauren Hill? Does that name ring a bell with you at all? Huh. Oh, yes. I think you told, was it you or someone who read my book told me about her? Was she like the basketball girl? She was, yeah. I was, uh, I used to teach at Mount St. Joseph University in Cincinnati and she was a, uh, she was a freshman basketball player who was diagnosed with, I, th- I think it's DIPG. I, I don't, I think that's what the acronym is, but it's a very aggressive form of brain cancer. And it was the fall was the fall of 2014, 2015 basketball season, she was dying. And the college petitioned the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA, to move up the start of the season two weeks so that Lauren would be able to play in a game. And it generated nationwide, um, you know, nationwide press and everything else. And it was just a huge thing on the campus. And she played in the game. And interestingly, the game she played in her game, I think it was either the day before or the day of the day that Brittany Maynard took her life. So there was oh, just, wow. there's a, ju- a juxtaposition between Lauren and uh, Brittany Maynard. So if you, if you write volume two, volume two of this book, look up, uh, look up Lauren Hill. That's right. Well, actually, and now I remember I did watch the video and of my husband, who's a big basketball player and fan, uh, already knew of her story. And then I watched watched that video. So yeah, it's beautiful. And and it goes to show when someone is, you know, suffering and thinking, okay, well then, you know, maybe someone who's been before me, like Brittany Maynard, maybe that's the path I should take. 
it takes having others like Lauren Hill or Maddie Stepanek to help us see, no, there isn't only one way. There's not only another way, but there is a better way. There is the right way. And it's possible because other people who have walked the path of suffering have, have demonstrated that for us. All right. Principle number nine, not all choices are equal, but they create a ripple effect either way. Mm, yeah. So this one I think is really important because when it comes to assisted suicide, there is this tendency for people to say, look, it's my life. And if I end my life, it has no impact on you. And what our response really needs to be is that's actually not true. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you would just make that bold statement. But as we communicate with someone who thinks that way, we want to convey that as, as you know, the old poem is, uh, it goes, no man is an island. We are interconnected. There's a great quote I use in my book from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality and we are tied to a single garment of destiny. And he said, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And the reality is there will be people who ask for assisted suicide in an environment when it's legal, not because deep down they want it, but because their neighbor already chose it. And they're influenced by the choice that their neighbor made. And they think, well, she's no longer a burden on her family. And I feel like a burden on my family. And if they're pressed, do you really want this? They might say yes but they are influenced by the choice of another. So when someone is in our presence, when they, when they are absent from us, their presence, their absence, these things impact us. And, and I use an example of a, a young woman from Colombia named Zuli Sanguino, who has an incredible story. She was born with great disfigurement. She didn't have either of her legs and only half of her arms. When she was two, her father committed suicide. Uh, as, as a young girl, she was uh, sexually assaulted. She was, you know, bullied for being physically different. So she went through profound suffering to the point that she thought one day as a teenager about killing herself, about committing suicide. And thankfully, she didn't do that. And thankfully, she has a great mother who's been her her cheerleader, you know, convincing her that she could overcome her her physical difference and her suffering and 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 do great things with her life. And she's now an artist and a motivational speaker. And because she endured and overcame so much, she was interviewed by various media outlets. And there happened to be a young man who was overwhelmed with his life, who was taking steps to kill himself. And he was very close. He was in a room with a gun. Um, but he had turned the TV on in the room he was in. And it just so happened that the station he tuned into was um, playing an interview of Zuli. And so he became captivated by this physically disfigured woman on the screen talking about all her suffering and how she overcame it. And instead of picking up his gun to kill himself, he picked up a pen and paper and wrote her a letter and they became friends. And I think to myself, what if Zuli had committed suicide those years prior? Her witness, her testimony never would have been aired on TV at that pivotal moment where someone else is about to despair would have then despaired. So had she been absent from the world, that would have been disastrous for this young man. But her presence was therefore a blessing to him. So that's a reminder to all of us that when someone thinks, oh, in, in an autonomous decision, I could just end my life and it doesn't impact you. Her story is proof that that actually is false. Great story again. Last principle, beauty and creativity are transformative. 
Yes. So I loved writing this chapter because it involves so many of my favorite things, including music <laughs> and sunsets and beauty. Um, but one of the things I was really inspired in in my research was a hospice physician, a palliative care physician in California by the name of Dr. B.J. Miller. And he has an incredible TED Talk, um, and he shares his own story of going to college, um, getting an, an, an basically electrocuted on campus so that his legs had to be amputated and one of his arms had to be amputated. But it changed the whole course of the direction of his future. And after recovering from this near-death experience, um, he decided to pursue medicine and then became a palliative care physician. One of the things he talks about is how palliative care should be an environment of beauty. He talks about how they actually routinely make cookies in his palliative care center, even in the hospice center, even though a lot of his patients can't eat them because the smell of cookies is just such a beautiful smell. I mean, we all <laughs> love to smell oh, fresh baked cookies. Absolutely. And so he talks, what's that? Absolutely. Yeah. And so he just talks about how on every level they create a sensual experience where the smells are beautiful. They're not the clinical, sterile smell of a hospital. The sights are beautiful, where you have nice art on the wall. Um, the relationships are beautiful. So you speak in hushed tones. You have people holding your hand. All of the things that um, contribute to our well-being. And so one of the things I share is my own love of the ukulele um, and how I've played my ukulele for a lot of people in the hospital um, and in, in environments of, of sickness, several of them who have dementia. And I have seen the power of music to unlock the minds of people that seem to be unlocked and, and people that can't remember who they are, or where they are, or how old they are. If you start singing, you are my, they will repeat or follow that with sunshine, my only sunshine. And, and they will sing. It's, it's truly remarkable. There was one woman I remember playing for. Her husband would always sit at the foot of her bed. She had regressed to thinking she was a child. Um, she always played with a doll. And she knew every single word to You Are My Sunshine. The husband would always ask me to play that song because she loves that song. But someone will look at an individual with dementia and think that they don't recall anything. And so music is just one of many examples of a tool that can unlock someone, that can help enter their world, that can can make them happy in, in an otherwise negative experience. So, and then, and then just one last thing, again, people hopefully will get the book by going to loveunleasheslife.com, but there's a great story in there I tell of Dr. Paul Brand, who uh, worked with leprosy patients in India, and just what I write about what his experience taught him from these people who couldn't feel pain, and how he was trying to repair not only very specific problems, such as their deformed hands, because he was a hand surgeon, but he, he learned through interacting with them the need to step back and take in the whole picture of the person and how to holistically better their lives, to not just focus on the hand, but focus on the individual. And that when he saw suffering, he ought to get, he, he sought rather to get creative and, and improve their circumstances, not eliminate the people that he was meant to help. Hmm. Very good. 
Stephanie, you've talked a lot about the book uh, over you know the past this podcast and the previous one as well too. If if there was one thing you want people to take away from it, what would it be? Good question. So much <laughs> we just went through ten points. Um, I, I think it would be the title. I think it would be start with what that whatever you're facing, and which can be acknowledged to be very brutal. Uh, there is some suffering that you know. As I read some, there are some parts about my book that make me get moved to tears when I read about the brutality that some people live with, the suffering, the anguish. Um, and I think the one takeaway would be not to minimize that, but to be empowered in response to it and say, okay, this is evil. This is terrible. This is awful, whatever description you want to use. But what good can I bring from this? What creativity can I inject into this situation? What amazing thing can come out of this terrible thing? And I think when we ask that question, we can be led down a positive path. Yeah, very well said. All right, as we start to to bring start to wrap up uh, this podcast, I'd like to go back to talking about the pro life un- uh, the pro life movement. Um, understand, and we're going to talk about it. Understanding um, it, it's encompassing the entirety of life. We're not just going to talk about you know abortion or assisted suicide, but the pro life movement as a whole. What do you What do you see? What have been the triumphs? What are the challenges? What do you see moving forward? Hmm. I mean, certainly there has been huge growth in the movement over the years. I, as I mentioned with my own story, I was a child of the movement because my parents were activists in it. So I grew up in the 80s and 90s. So if I think about then versus now, even the number of organizations and the number of people, for example, working full time, whereas largely in the early days, you had very dedicated people, but largely they were volunteers because they had other jobs that they were doing or other commitments they had. So they could still only give a degree of their time. But when you are in your case, like a full-time ethicist or, you know, working for a a campus pro-life organization full-time or whatever the case may be, you just practically have more hours to give. So there's, there's more happening. There's more reach. And I would say it's very multifaceted in a good way. We've got so much happening in the pastoral arm with pregnancy support centers, with homes for pregnant women. Um, all of that has been developed so much since I think of, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s and so forth. Um, politically, I think we have a, a bigger challenge ahead of us, uh, especially looking at the political climate, not only in the U.S., but quite frankly, most of the world. And so that's where I think what really matters in the pro-life movement also is the educational arm, that that we really work to make these attacks on human life unthinkable so that regardless of what the law is, the average person doesn't want these things. So then the law will naturally change according to where public opinion is. So there is a lot of good happening, but so much more needs to happen because the problem runs so deep. And, and so we, we have a lot that still needs to be done. Yeah. Picking up on the, on the political bit, I was, I was wondering if you could comment on, well, as, as I said earlier, we are recording this podcast on the 25th of January. So we are about one week into a little less than a week into the Biden administration. And I was wondering if you could comment a bit on the effect or, or the potential effect that the Biden administration may have on your work, particularly here in the U.S., as well as the future of your pro-life work in Canada. Mm. 
Yeah, I think we have a, a big battle ahead of us. A lot of things that were steps in the right direction to protect life are being undone very quickly by the Biden administration. And there certainly is going to be more attacks on preborn life that are allowed in terms of funding and so forth. And so I think what we need to remember is whatever environment we're in, what we can control is how we respond to it. Mm -hmm. So people can be very disappointed thinking, oh my gosh, the battle just got harder. You know, it's, I'm overwhelmed thinking about all that needs to be done. But there's a great quote by Edward Everett Hale, who once said, I am only one, but still I am one. Uh, I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And he said, because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. And what I really like about that quote is it emphasizes the power of one, whereas too often our tendency is to be dismayed by one. We think I'm only one, I can't do everything, and we're filled with despair. And instead, we need to realize it's because I'm only one that I have to do that one thing that I can do. And yes, I can't help everyone and I can't do everything, but I can do something and I'm obligated to do that something. And if everyone did their something, <laughs> then the world would be a better place. So to, to look at what could be a trying future and just remember, we have to use the power of our one. We have to be salt and light, you know, to call on the Holy Spirit to help us be his instrument. And remember, start with what applies to the political reality of our world as it does to one's personal suffering. Uh, instead of saying, well, why did he get elected? And why did this happen? And why this? We need to say, okay, what good can I bring out of this situation? Uh, it's a bad situation and there are going to be tough times ahead. And once again, these these legal freedom-loving organizations that I mentioned earlier are going to need to be used to their maximal effort to make sure free speech rights are still protected in this country. Um, so there is a battle ahead of us, but we need to say, okay, but I'm going to bring good out of this situation. And what good is that going to be? Yeah. I'd like to go back uh, at the beginning of the, the part one of this podcast, I was mentioning my daughter was telling me that your, your audience is really young people. So I'd like to kind of kind of bring this to a close by asking you, what strategies would you suggest uh, for engaging especially young people in the pro-life cause as it moves forward? And particularly, what should the NCBC be doing? Hmm, good question. Certainly, we want to educate our young people as they are the future leaders of the world. And I think we need to go where they are. So, you know, making good relationships with high schools, with colleges, with community groups within colleges. So kind of at a bureaucratic level, it's probably not going to be easy for a group like the NCBC to work with a very secular institution. But within colleges, there are Catholic groups, evangelical groups, pro-life groups. So how do we connect directly with these groups and say, okay, give me access to your audience, you know, host a debate on your campus, which is what I've often done on college campuses. Um, let us train your club. Uh, hold a larger lecture, which isn't just for your club, and bring us in to be able to enlighten the students on this campus with a perspective they won't hear in the lecture hall. So they need your club to host an event 
So there's an opportunity for, for it to be heard elsewhere. So we really need to, in a sense, remember what the civil rights activists did. They would gather in the black churches to be emboldened and to be inspired and to be given courage, but they didn't stay in the comfort of the pews of the black churches. They then took to the streets and they marched with those signs that said, I am a man. And they, they fought peacefully um, under the leadership of people like Dr. King, but boldly, they fought boldly to ensure their message got to the very people they needed to reach, to not expect those people to come to them, you know, for a white person to show up at a black church and say, hey, what are you preaching this Sunday? But instead take what they heard on Sunday and go go to the white marketplace and, and bring that message out. And so that's where I think it's so important to go where young people are and bring the message to them and enlist them to then further spread it to their peers. Well said. Stephanie, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I'm actually reminded of something my young niece, I'm, she's 14 now, but when she was about four years old, she said, Auntie Steph, you're a big talker. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good for podcasts like this. So. I guess I guess it is good. I'm like, oh, gosh, I've been such a big talker. I, I don't know what else to say other than... Um, you know, there's one quote I actually end my book with. When I was going through a hard time, um, I think unbeknownst to this person, but an elderly audience member years ago emailed me this, this beautiful quote by Leon Bloy that just was what I needed at that time in my life. And it's actually what I chose to end my book with. Um, and the quote is, there are places in the heart that do not yet exist. Suffering has to enter in for them to come to be. So I think that's probably my, my parting words would be, not my words, but his, that, that for each of us to take to heart that there are places in our own heart that um, will only come to be through suffering. And that's not easy. That's very hard. But if we can work through that hard, it actually leads us from crucifixion to resurrection. Excellent. All right. Your new book is Start With What? 10 Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. Once again, where can people get the book? Yes. Yeah, so they can go to my website, which is loveunleasheslife.com. Click on books and it's the, the top there. We'll have the link to Amazon. Otherwise, you can just look for it on Amazon. But if you want the direct link, it's at all the Amazon marketplaces around the world. So .com, .ca, .uk, and so forth. And if people wanted to get in touch with you, is the website the best place to go as well? Yes, that is the best. So once again, at loveunleasheslife.com, just go to the contact page and you can email us. Stephanie Gray Connors, thank you for joining us on our Bioethics On Air podcast today. You're welcome. It's been a joy. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics On Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you have suggestions for future topics, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics On Air. 
Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.